Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. And I feel like in our world today, we are inundated with so much hard things. We can turn the news on, the radio, any source of media, and we hear hard stories. And I think for a lot of us, for the first time in history, that's kind of a thing. Um, A hundred years ago, you had to wait for a newspaper to come out to know any information of what was going on. And now we can turn our phones on and be inundated with so much hard things. And I feel like that weakens our ability to be compassionate. We start to numb out because there's just so much. Our mental capacity cannot hold that kind of trauma. And so I think we get really weak in these compassion muscles. We aren't able to maybe show care, um, especially to ourselves. I think that is where it's mostly affecting. So I want to read Numbers 22 through 12 and uh, just get the story that we're looking at. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin. They stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now there is no water for the community and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Emphasis my own. (laughs) Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he was proved holy among them. So if, when we read stories, I feel like we are looking for a good guy and a bad guy. And in this story, if we were to read the story of Moses just from this one passage, Moses is clearly the bad guy here. God is compassionate and kind, and Moses is kind of being a jerk. He's throwing a big hissy fit in front of everyone. And so there's so much more to Moses' story than that, because the stories we've been reading up to this point show this kind of traumatic existence that Moses is having all of these circumstances that are weird and hard that no one else on planet Earth has ever experienced before. And then we see him being super angry and unkind. And so we can see that in our own lives, we have this whole gray area. We are not black and white. We live in this gray area. And so I think if we sit on Moses' story, how bizarre it is. Like, do you guys ever... I'm going to out myself. Do you ever watch Lifetime movies? The laughter says yes. I see you. 
I feel like there are, so for those of you who are not familiar, who are more cultured than perhaps the rest of us, a Lifetime movie is super dramatic, based on a truish story, but like highly dramatized. We've got the music swelling, we have like intensity buildup, and the, it is, it's, it's intense. And we get sucked in, because we're like, this is crazy, and it's kind of true, and we just get pulled in. I feel like in Moses' story, there are like a solid seven, eight different lifetime stories that can be pulled out of that. That's not normal. And they're all really true. There's no need to dramatize them. They are, they're true, and they're super weird and super intense. And so you guys know that I'm a therapist. So I look at the story of Moses kind of as if he were my um, client, which is kind of fun. I totally geeked out on it. And the one thing I kept coming up over and over again is... This man has had so much trauma and loss and grief in his life. It's unbelievable. So I pulled out, because I was totally geeking out, I pulled up this thing. Um, the veterans, the VA, they do the world's best work on this thing called post-traumatic stress disorder. We kind of all have heard of it. We kind of know what it is a little bit. But I don't think we know how many people are affected by it. It's really, really common. And so there's this kind of like questionnaire quiz thing we do to engage with people and see where they are on their trauma scale a little bit. Like, are you super traumatized a little bit? Just kind of. I mean, it's kind of weird. But I did this thing for Moses. I put, I threw a story. I totally made him my client. And um, because he did not sign the HIPAA paperwork, I can share it with you. <laughs> Therapy joke. <laughs> Um, so if you have like one or two check marks on this, you are likely to be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. If you have three to five, you definitely, you're definitely in it deep. So I'm going to, I'm going to go through the list so you can see how crazy this is. Um, natural disaster happened to me, witnessed it, learned about it, doesn't apply. I would say natural disaster, the whole plagues and floods. I mean, I'm pretty safe on that one. Yes. Um, let's see. Captivity, check. Severe human suffering, check. Sudden violent death, that happened a few times. Like people being sucked out from the earth. Check, check. Um, serious injury, harm, or death you cause to someone else. Awkward, check. <laughs> Any other stressful event or experience? I feel like his whole life, yeah. Check, 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 check. So on a scale that would say, if you have two or three of these, you're at risk for post-traumatic stress. He has like 12 like three, four times the amount someone would need to be diagnosed with this. So I think I'm gonna play, play it safe that he definitely is suffering from this post-traumatic stress. And so, oh, let's see, maybe, where are we? Where am I going with this? So the thing is with our human suffering, our hearts and our bodies are made to handle only a certain amount of suffering and pain. And when it reaches capacity, things start going haywire. Things are not good. And so we just aren't designed to hold trauma that long. We, when we experience trauma, when you think about when someone passes away, we don't act like it's a normal day. We grieve together, we get together, there's an event. In all cultures, there's some kind of event surrounding someone passing. And that's because we are not meant to hold trauma on our own. We need our community to help us do that. And so... Moses kind of didn't really have that person, maybe, because he was so set apart from everyone else. He was a leader. And I like to think of it this way. He's like an Israelite 
But he was, like, raised in royalty and, like, had this other experience. And so he's, like, not like those Israelites. And I feel like you know what I'm talking about because we do it with the Christian thing. When people find out we're Christians, we're like, oh, yeah, we're Christians. But, like, we're not those Christians. We're, like, cool Christians. And so we can kind of see how we can separate ourselves from our community groups, like, picking and choosing. Like, you know, we all do it. We all do it. Um, so... Moses had all this unaddressed and unprocessed pain and trauma. And here's how it came out. He gets really angry over and over again in his life. It's not just a one-time event. You know, we think about um, he murdered someone. That's probably an act of anger. He has, he, this is the second time hitting a stone to make water come out. The first time, God is angry, and Moses is chills, you know, hey, God, chill out, we're good, cool. And the second time, God is fine. He's totally fine in this passage. He's not saying, like, Israelites. He's saying, yep, give him the water. Hit it once, and water comes out. Moses is the one who decides that he's angry, and he's just fed up. He's done. And so we see in this picture that Moses' anger is coming out strong. And knowing this about Moses doesn't make who he is any less incredible. In fact, I think it makes him so much more incredible and amazing because here's this man, I'm picturing like this backpack full of bricks of pain. He is lugging around for his whole life and he's not unpacking it. And he's still able, God is still able to use him in amazing and powerful ways. And so it's hard for us sometimes to read the Bible and think about these as real actual people. They're just stories, like we all kind of know the stories We've heard them, we've, you know, we, we get them, they make sense. But to imagine as a real human being sitting in this pew right here, this man who is coming down the aisle dragging bags of bricks of pain. And I feel like when I give that imagery, a lot of us can relate to that. That when we come to church, we are dragging these bags of pain in with us. And so, let me think. Did I, I skipped a part. Oh, man, where am I going? I'm new to this, guys. <laughs> I feel like if we could put ourselves in Moses' shoes, imagine what his thoughts were about himself, and imagine where, what shape his heart is in, we can have so much compassion. So I'm going to go through a quick overview of some of his trauma, and I want you to imagine it as if I'm saying this about your friend or a family member. So Moses, we know, was given up at birth because they were killing all the baby boys, and his mother puts him in the water. He gets found by the Pharaoh's daughter, and he lives. Do you ever wonder that as he grows up, as he's leading these people for 40 years, if he's looking around his community and saying, where are some of the boys my age? We're missing people here. Like, this is weird. Why are there more females than males? Like, what's going on? Did he have survivor's guilt? There's something. When you think about his adoption, he had family that wanted and loved him and wanted to keep him and wasn't allowed to. And so adoption can have trauma surrounding it when you've lost your birth family. When you think about his mother was his wet nurse for the first three years of life, two, three years, and imagine at two or three years they say, okay, see ya, we're never going to see you again. And he never sees his birth family again. I mean, his brother and sister later on. But for the most part, he never sees his parents again. And so we think, oh, he's two or three. He doesn't remember. Man, kids remember. Body holds the trauma. 
And so then he's raised in a really culturally different environment than his family. So he's raised in extreme wealth in the most powerful, like the Pharaoh's house, which is the most powerful kingdom on, on planet Earth this time. How bizarre is that? Like, can we imagine what that would be like to grow up in that place? And he grows up different. He doesn't maybe look like people. He doesn't maybe, maybe he's like seen as other in his, his adopted family. How was he treated in that family? And we can guess because shortly, you know, when he's coming of age, he commits murder. He sees an uh, Egyptian mistreating an Israelite and he kills him, commits murder. And then he is forced to flee. So leave the only home, the only life he's ever known because he's done this awful thing. So then he is in the wilderness. He marries into a family. And so he is essentially in his third culture now, his birth culture, the Egyptian culture, and now this wilderness culture. And so, I mean, some of you know, I'm married to someone from Indonesia. Hey, hey boo. And it's interesting for me to hear his stories of what it's like to immigrate from one country to another. It's not always easy. It can be fun and engaging, but it can be really difficult, and it can be really isolating. So he's coming into this new culture, trying to figure out how do I, who am I in this new place? So then, you know, he's doing his job, he's a shepherd, when he gets the call from God. This is like the funniest story from like a woman's perspective. It's so funny to me. So imagine Zipporah's his wife, and Moses comes in from being with the sheep all day, maybe a little too long, and she's tired, she needs some help with the kids, like she's kind of done, and he's like, hey, Zip, girl, can we talk? I feel like, you know, we've had this life plan, life is good here, but what if, throwing it out there, let's just say God talked to me through a burning bush, and he wants us to lead a rebellion against like the biggest empire? You feeling it? Can you imagine Zipporah's response? Like, mm, mm-hmm, tell me more. Really? The bush told, oh, let's uproot our family because the bush told you to do that. Mm-hmm. So for you who are wives out there, I think you can feel this, right? Like, this is crazy. This is insane. Um, so then, I mean, this list. So I'm like halfway through this list. Next, he goes to confront a powerful world leader and demand that he release uh, the Israelites. Imagine in today's day if we were to do that. If some shepherd were, was to be like, hey, we're, we're not going to have these people as slaves anymore. We're going. See ya. That is unbelievable. So then he orchestrates an entire nation of people out of the only home that they and their distant relatives have ever known. And on the way out, he gets rejection from everyone. The whole time he's in the desert, he is constantly questioned, like, why has God let us out here just to die? Why, 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 why? And they disobey against him. They, even his brother and sister, who have been like his right-hand man and woman, are like, Moses, we don't know if we trust you. We don't know if you're doing the right thing. And so this constant rejection over and over and over again against a job when we, at the burning bush, he did not want this job. This was not his dream plan. And so imagine that after this whole lifetime and then 40 years in the desert, I guess 38 years in the desert at this point, this pain, can you feel that in your heart? What it would feel like to be rejected and to be trying so hard to be this thing that you don't really want to be, that you feel called to be, 
and to be met with such pain after pain after pain. How would you process that? What would that even look like? So what we know about anger is that unprocessed grief can lead to anger and bitterness. Another thing we know is that anger is a cheap expression, a socially acceptable way of expressing sadness when sadness can appear weak and vulnerable. So if you can imagine Moses, every time he was upset or hurt or dealing with this trauma, just wept and cried, he might lose some followers. People might not be on board with that. He would look weak. And this whole time he's got to portray this, this idea that he's strong and powerful. And the other thing that we know about anger is that we can often hide our anger really, really well until we can't. And so that's kind of what I wanted to focus on a little bit today. Um, I met with Harriet this week. Where is Harriet? Oh, there she is. And I had just the best time unpacking the story and talking with her, and we were just kind of geeking out about it. And one of my gifts, as I've been trained this way as a therapist, is that I can hide I can hide myself behind my client's stories and my friend's stories. I know really well how to ask the right questions to get things off of me. Like, no, how are you? No, how are you? I'm super good at it. It's like my superpower. I can deflect like crazy. And I can do that because it's really hard to be vulnerable. It's really hard to feel like people are going to see me, they're going to judge me, and they're going to reject me. And that's what we do. We hide from this. And so I'm telling Harriet, oh, Harriet, here's some stories of people I know who've had anger issues, and in the Bible, here's how anger's talked about. And, and Harriet is like, oh, when have you experienced anger? Harriet, come on, girl. <laughs> Who, me? And it wasn't because in that moment I was acting angry, I wasn't hulking out at Harriet, but because she knows this is the human condition. We are all here. We are all feeling anger. We are, we are wired that way. And so it was hard for me to talk to Harriet about my experience with anger because there's a lot of shame tied up in it. And so I shared a little bit about how when I was a kid, I super loved church. I loved it so much. The doors were open, I was there. Because church for me represented a safe place where I felt really loved and seen. People wanted me to be there. And that wasn't the case for me at home. And so church became this really amazing place where I went, people told stories, I felt connected, I felt seen and loved, and they had snacks, bonus. But I just feel like on one occasion, in this safe, beautiful space that was my church, I heard this verse that just struck me to my core. I was probably like 10 maybe. And the verse is, and keep in mind, kids at that age are... We hear everything and interpret it incorrectly. You know, so my 10-year-old theologian had not been developed quite yet. And so I heard this verse, and it's the verse, maybe you've heard it too. Um, the sins of the father pass from generation to generation to generation. And I'm like, crap, I am totally screwed. <laughs> because when I look at my family's history, I know that both sets of my grandparents were angry, unhappy people who didn't love their children well. And you can imagine where my parents were after being raised in that. And so I'm looking at my own life and thinking, is this just like my family? Like, we just do this? We live unhappily? We, like, have anger issues? And, like, this is it? 
I wish someone had explained to me that verse a little further on that God redeems us from that because that is a thing. But at that age, I was just hurt by that, so crushed, like, I'm doing all these things. So, like a lot of people who come from sad homes, we do, t- we do, we do this thing where we become two different people. At home, I do whatever I have to do to survive. I get angry, I blow up, I'm unkind because that's what I've been taught. And then I know that doesn't work in the real world. So when I'm outside of my home, I'm super sweet, I'm loving, I like want you to like me because I need your affection so badly. And so I become the ultimate people pleaser. And so for you Enneagram nerds out there, you can probably guess my number. <laughs> um, I can tell there's not many Enneagram nerds. Wow, yep, two, you got it, woo-woo. And so as a two, I'm growing up in that way. Um, do you think I would ever share my anger with people at church? Oh, heck no. Because it was so important for, them, for me to be seen as loving and kind and sweet, and I'll do anything and everything for you, as long as you just like me. If you like me, I'm in. So I was living that passive-aggressive life. And you know what I'm talking about, where you are super sweet, you don't ever say anything, but then people can kind of tell you're not cool because your passive-aggressive behavior lets them in, that you aren't happy. And even when people ask me, like, are we cool? Oh, my gosh, we're so cool. No worries. We're great. Right? So I'm just shoving and pushing down anger over and over again. And so naturally, what do you do with that? You become a counselor. It's brilliant. It's a great idea. I recommend it. Super idea. And at this time, I had actually never gone to therapy or counseling. Also funny. And so here I show up. And for the degree, you have to to finish the degree to become a counselor, you have to do 20 sessions of therapy. And my first session, I go in, because I'm, again, people pleaser, you want me to do 20 sessions of therapy? I'm there, I got this. And I go in, and my therapist is Wendy, and I'm like, Wendy, girl, I'm super pumped to be here. I have no idea what we're going to talk about for 20 sessions, because I'm an open book. I'm good. There's nothing. I'm good. Totally good. Mm. Isn't that cute? Isn't that sweet? (laughs) Again, I think you know where this is going. By session two or three, I am downright begging Wendy. I need to come two, three times a week. I need your home number and your weekend availability because this is happening. Because a lot of times when you have such unpacked anger, it just, when someone asks the right question, there it comes. It comes out. There it is. And there were so many times that I was horrified by the things coming out of my mouth horrified because again I identify as a sweet kind gentle girl and here I am saying just hate fuel things about how angry I am about my family and so all the anger was there I had to look at it and that profound experience gave me the permission I needed to unpack all the anger so take my backpack off take all the bricks out look at them and decide I didn't want to carry them anymore And what made that happen wasn't just because I read a book about it, but it was because there was another human being expressing a lot of compassion towards me and saying, this makes sense. It makes sense why you're so angry. I get it. This makes sense. It's okay. And so, yeah, I felt seen, understood, loved. And isn't that a great ending to the story? Since that time, I have never dealt with anger. You're welcome. Can you see how unaware I can be of myself? <laughs> so part two of my story is, so I'm living my dream life. I'm married to an amazing, wonderful, loving human being. 
Again, Coos, you're my boo. And I have two children who I am so pumped about. I just love them with every bone in my body. And I think that I'm going to kill the motherhood game. Like, I like kids. Kids like me. I'm pretty crafty. I mean, I got this under control. I'm going to Pinterest-style kill this motherhood thing. Oh, yeah. And here it comes again. Here comes this anger. And a lot of it was triggered by me wondering, why, why, do my parents feel this way about me that I feel about my kids? Like, am I a lovable person? Which again, two on the Enneagram, that's our question. Are we lovable? And so I felt like um, super shocked and so angry that I was feeling anger. I'm with my kids all day long. You're in this cyclical thing where you're just doing the same thing over and over again. You rarely talk to adults. Your brain is becoming mush. And I'm feeling angry, and it's coming out towards my kids. And then that fear of, oh, my gosh, I'm doing what my parents did. I'm going to be, I know how this game looks. This is terrifying to me. I'm so scared of this. And so I was angry, the fact that I was angry. And I felt shame that I was angry again because I've already dealt with my anger. And this cycle of feeling shame and anger, anger at the shame, shame at the anger, I mean, it just is spiraling. And so we keep our anger, anger hidden until we can. And so for me, I was trying to play it cool. I get kind of funny when I'm trying to deflect. I'm talking to a friend one day, and all of a sudden, we're talking like, oh my gosh, being a mom's so hard. And then I'm crying, and I'm angry, and I'm letting her know, this is like, it's not hard. This is the worst. This is not what I wanted. And guess what I was met with? I was not met with judgment. I was met with so much compassion. I was met with so much love, like, girl, you got this. This is okay. We all feel this way. And to be seen in that vulnerable moment when I worked so hard not to be vulnerable in that way and to be met with love, oh, my word, healing upon healing upon healing. And then that person was also able to walk me through it, like, maybe therapy again. Maybe talking about this with some more friends. Maybe being more open about this. And that was the right step. Those were my next right steps to getting the healing I needed for this new wave of anger that happened. And so being angry is a human experience. Every person in life knows it. We've all lived it. And it wasn't until I was in charge of my little band of people again that my anger bubbled up because I felt alone. And once I didn't feel alone, I was able to heal, just like I was with Wendy, my counselor. Our temptation is to ignore our pain, to numb it out, to push it down, to hide it away. And we can have pain pushed so far down within our souls that we don't even think it's there anymore. We've mastered it. And so my hope for us as a church is that we start learning and we keep practicing. I already see it happening. This idea of what does healing look like? How do we get there? For me, a mantra that's been super helpful, it's a quote, but I'm not sure from where, is this idea of, I am not responsible for what happened to me as a child, but I am responsible for getting the healing I need and the continued healing I need, not a one-time thing, but this is gonna be a continued thing. And so I think I've been a Cascade for close to a year now, and I've gotten to know several people here, and there seems to be an identifying trait that we're all holding on to. We are people suffering from a lot of grief. 
We have a lot of loss in our community. We have victims of abuse, spiritual or emotional, all kinds of abuse. When Connie Baker spoke a few weeks ago on spiritual abuse, how many of us couldn't relate to that talk? And so where I think that I'm looking at is when I came to Cascade, I think a lot of us think this way. This is our pit stop before we don't do church anymore. If this doesn't work out, peace out on, I mean, like, we're cool with God, but we're not cool with the church thing. And so we're all kind of coming in a little bit with, with people at arm's length. Like, I'm here, I'm here, but don't get too close. Like, stay at arm's length. And I feel like that is our cry out for the healing that we need. That is us saying to each other that I have pain, but I'm here. I keep showing up. And can you meet my need? For me, a lot of my needs have been met in this way. And it hasn't been by people telling me what to do or how to fix it. But it's been by people in this room saying, here's my pain, here's where I'm at. And me being able to say like, yes, oh my gosh, we can talk about that here, this is cool. We're, we're doing vulnerability here, awesome. It comes from people standing up here and saying, it's okay that we're having a human experience, let's do it together. Let's let our shame and our pain out. Let's be here in this place together because you have tools I don't have. I have tools you don't have. Let's share them. Let's do this. And so the other thing that is interesting is why do we keep coming here? Why do we come to church? What are we doing here? I don't know. What are we doing? I feel like for me, as a child, I heard this voice of God saying, I see you, and I love you. You are mine, and you belong. And I think that maybe every person in this room has felt that, experienced that a little bit. Maybe it's been a really long time. But that's why we're here. That's why we're doing this thing. And that steady voice of God is still there. Whether we can hear it or not, maybe our pain has pushed that voice down so far we can't hear it. And I feel as though if we start reaching out for the healing we need, that voice is going to get louder and louder and louder. It has for me, for sure. That voice of, I see you, I love you, you belong, gets louder and louder the more healing work I do. Another thing about, I've noticed about this church is that this is a church of resilience. We keep showing up. Either we're totally stupid <laughs> or there's something else here and we're not giving up. Moses was the king of resilience. Homeboy does not give up. Later on, at the end of his life, he is begging God to let him see the promised land. And he's saying, oh God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me see it. All through the story of Moses, he's dealing with loss, trauma, grief, anger, the cycle of shame, all of this stuff. And there must have been some moment of healing for him to say, God, I still want this. I still want to be a part of this community that walks into that promised land. I want it so bad. What does that tell us about him? Cascade's vision statement is safe to be, safe to grow. 
And this has to be a living statement. It can't just be like we say it like, hey, guys, you're safe here. We have to practice it. We have to own it. We have to push into it. What does it mean to be safe to be here? What does that mean to be safe to grow? And for me, it looks like being safe to be here is being able to to drop the facade that we're okay when we're not okay. It's being able to own that we have some anger issues that we gotta deal with, to own that we have grief issues that we have to deal with. And it's, it's unveiling that and saying, yeah, me too, I'm here, I got this, we're the same, we're on this path together. And then it's sharing our resources. We're resilient people, we bounce back, we get stronger every time we bounce back. And this group, this room, is full of people who are so courageous to even walk through the doors to be here. They are so brave to wake up in the morning and do it again and again and again. That blows my mind. That is equivalent to the story of Moses doing all these incredible things with God. And we get to be a part of that story. And I feel so excited to know that there are going to be seasons of our life where we're going to need more healing and more healing and more healing, because that is human nature. And I'm encouraging us to not to get tired of seeking that healing out, but to keep pushing forward. What do we have to do to get the healing we need more and more and more? And I feel like, what an amazing place to practice this. We get to do this right here. People up front are saying, it's okay to be you. It's okay to be real. It's okay to be seen. And so we would be straight up fools if we did not take that chance to practice. What does it look like to stop doing this and to pull in a little more? What does it look like to share your story a little more, a little deeper? If you're not careful, I'm gonna make Harriet come to all your houses and ask you straight up. Because <laughs> that was really helpful. <laughs> I feel so proud to be at this church. I feel so grateful to be at this church. It is a really powerful thing to be able to share my stories and love. I have no problem sharing my story because I know it's going to be met with grace and love. Today, this week, what is an action item you can go home with and think about where is the places of your heart that need healing and what's going to be your one step forward? What's going to be the person you talk to? Who, what, do you need to go to therapy? Because we've got some therapists here who can give some bomb referrals. What needs to happen for that next step, and that next step, and that next step? Let's keep this ball rolling, because it is so fun. That's all I got. Oh.